Guys, as we start the message this morning, I want to pick up where we left off last week. So there's going to be a little bit of repetition on the front end, and I trust that's okay. Last week, we looked at a guy, a villain named Nimrod, Genesis 10:11, And we said not only did his name mean rebel or we shall rebel, he was this, this re rebellious influence in his day. He was a mighty man. He had a powerful influence on the times and the people around him. He started two cities that became uh, paradigms of power, uh, imperial power, uh, Babylon there, you can see uh, down on the map, and then up the Tigris River Valley, Nineveh as well. And it's not just that they were powerful cities and they became historically important, but you remember we said that those cities that Nimrod, this rebel against God, had instituted, those cities then became important later when God wanted to discipline his people. It was through the rod of Nineveh and Babylon. So the city of Nineveh became the center of the Assyrian Empire. It was that empire and that city, you remember Jonah the prophet didn't want to go to. And not long after he went there, 722 BC, the city and the empire that resided there uh, destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel. That that kingdom, that tribal kingdom, never existed again after that. And it was also, if you remember, it was the policy of the Assyrian Empire to import Gentiles, in this case, into the land of Israel. Those Gentiles who brought their religion with them wed with Jews, and that's where we got the Samaritan religion. And while the good Samaritan in the Gospel accounts is a good guy, the Samaritan religion was not. It was a false religion was based somewhat on Judaism, somewhat on paganism. They had their own temple, their own mountain, etc. That was not a good thing. That came from Nimrod city, Nineveh. And then also Babylon. You remember the Babylonian Empire, and that would be the empire that would dispossess Judah. So when we talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem, that was King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. That's who God used to discipline his people destroyed the city in 586 B.C. We also, though, and probably most importantly, talked about Babylon as the beginning of what Augustine said in the 400s. He described as the city of man. You remember, he said basically, since the fall of angels and since Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, there have really been two, two versions of life on the earth ever since. One, Augustine described as the city of man. And that's man fallen man corporately getting together to build that fallen version of life of worship of God of redemption but it's man's effort man's creativity brought together and it started post-flood at the city of Babel or Babylon and we said that that city we would call or the influence spiritually of that city today we would call in the language of the New Testament the world the world is that system energized by Satan that's man Energized by Satan, doing things his way instead of God's way. And so that influence was huge. That's what we looked at last week. And we said this too, if, depending on how your Bibles are laid out, <clears throat> Nimrod's story is Genesis 10 and 11. If chapter 11 ends on your left page and chapter 12 starts on your right page, that would be perfect. Because as you turn the page, you're meant to see that while the city of man, Babylon, man's efforts to regain paradise, is being built with this huge city 
right? This very impressive city, the ziggurat that reaches into heaven, the stairway back to heaven. While this big impressive feat is being accomplished, you get into chapter 12 and everything changes. So you got the city of man being constructed, Babel, and you turn the page to the next chapter, and God's at work. God's not building the city of Babylon then or today in the sense of spiritually. But God was at work then, and we saw that. We're going to see that this morning in Genesis chapter 12. So we're picking up again this morning in the series Heroes and Villains, 66 messages of individuals and groups, 44 of those being positive, people that we would say were godly examples of faith, that they follow in the line of Jesus, the superhero, thinking of Hebrews 11, the hall of fame or the hall of faith, because they're faithful. They're not perfect, but they're faithful. And then we're looking at 22 villains. Nimrod was the second of those who they look more like Satan, the anti-hero. They're faithless. They're doing things as they see fit. You remember we said on the opening message that Satan, for all his glory, all his responsibility, all that God had given him and made him, he says it's not enough. I want more and I want different. And that's what describes faithlessness to these characters throughout the Bible. So God's calling Abraham. This is where we wound down last week. So you got Babel, the impressive city going up, the city of man. You turn the page to chapter 12, and this is what you've got. God says to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You remember we said in Babylon, they said we're going to make our own name. And that meant we're our own gods. We're the only authority that matters. We name ourselves. God says to Abram, I'll make your name great. And he'll change it. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll bless all families of the earth through you. Now, this is a strategic passage. If you know anything about the theology of the Bible, Genesis 12 is a hinge point for almost all the theology and everything that follows follows from this passage. We're not getting into most of that this morning. We're not getting into the theology or where this takes us. We're going to cue in on Abraham specifically. But we're meant to see while the impressive works of man are going up, God's work appears as absolutely insignificant. It's almost impossible to see. It's an old childless couple that God taps on the shoulder, and they're from down in the area around Babel, Ur. That's who God's going to be at work at. So man's doing all his mighty works. Has nothing to do with God. But God's work is beginning, but it's hard to see. Very hard to see. And think of this too. We're going to be in the Christmas season before you know it. Actually, I was in a, a lumberyard the other two weeks ago. They already had their Christmas stuff out. Uh, second week of October. So maybe that's why I was thinking of this. Think about the time when, so most momentous thing, the Son of God, God the Son, takes on our flesh, enters, enters this world as one of us. Nothing bigger than that, right? Apart from his resurrection, that's key is everything there. But if you're in the Roman Empire, how big is the deal that this Jewish carpenter and this little gal have a baby in Bethlehem? Does the Jewish Empire know, or excuse me, the Roman Empire know anything about that? Not a thing. You know, as Christians, we read the accounts in Luke and Matthew, and we say, man, the angels came down. You remember they spoke to those shepherds. But they only spoke to a few shepherds. Shepherds were lowly people. Most of the rest of the Jews didn't get that. You got a few wise men coming from the east, and that shakes up things a little bit for Herod and Jerusalem. 
But do you think anybody in Rome knew what was going on in Bethlehem? It didn't, it didn't occur, it didn't rise to the radar. It was absolutely insignificant for them. And one of the things I want to be careful of when we, when we get into this, if we talk about Abraham today, we're talking about the, the patriarch of faith. He's the model of faith and faithfulness in the New Testament. And you think, wow, what a great guy, what a big life, what a huge influence. It did not look that way to him or in his life or the people that knew him in the world around him. Abraham's life did not look impressive. He had some wealth. He had some respect from his neighbors. But Abraham was not an earth-shaking figure. And as we're describing people of faith, we want to make sure we get back to this very, very foundational element. Faith or faithfulness for you and I, for our names to be in the hall of faith or fame like the others in Hebrews 11, it means we're faithful to who God's made us in the time and the place He's put us and His purposes. And guys, do you know that for most of us, that's not going to be measurable on the scale of the world. And if for you and I, significance in the kingdom of heaven requires something impressive like Babel or Babylon, we're in trouble because it's not going to be there. But if Abraham's the model, what did he do? What was so big that he did? Now, we're going to look at a few of these things. I'd say he took a walk. He took a walk. He simply went where God told him to go. And God says, he's my man. There's a huge temptation for us to measure significance against the world. If Abraham measured his significance against Babylon, he would have felt like a total loser. If you and I measure our significance in God's kingdom or in what he's up to by the measures of the world, we're almost always going to feel deficient. And that, that can be absolutely a lie. If I'm a homemaker doing dishes, changing dirty diapers, helping take care of a husband, raise kids, because that's the purpose for God in my life, that's significant. That's the kingdom of God on earth. If I'm going to a job to provide for my family that I don't think is a glamorous job, it's not significant, but I'm in the place and the time God means for me to be, that's heroism in the faith. Faithfulness to who God's made us, where He's put us, His purposes for us, that's what we want to measure against. Not Babylon. Right? We're residents of the new Jerusalem in heaven. Heaven is our home. It's not a city on earth. So we're ambassadors here. We're citizens of heaven on assignment. So we want to make sure we're not using the city of man, Babylon, or the world's measures for our spiritual significance. But it's what we tend to do all the time. Abram's life did not look significant. It didn't look impressive, but it was absolutely what God was doing on the earth in his day. So Genesis 12, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be in just a few chapters of Genesis this morning. And I want to look at Abraham's faith or faithfulness in three different key areas. Abraham's faith in action is where we'll start because that's where his story starts. We'll look at Abraham's faithfulness in worship. And then we'll look at Abraham's uh, faith or faithfulness in belief. That last one's a little harder to, to define well. But let's start in Genesis 12. From verses 1 through 5, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram's originally in Ur, then he's in Haran when Terah, his father, dies. God says, so Abe, you get up and you go. Now for most of us, moving, moving is a major issue, isn't it? If, whether you live in the country or in the city, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, if my, my company or my job moves me from one place to another, it's uprooting, it's upsetting. There's a lot, I'm, I'm tearing away from relationships, things I know, I hope there's a good reason to go. So God just out of the blue says to Abram, hey, get up and go. I'm not telling you where you're going. I'll show you. You get up and you go. And look at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord told him. (laughs) This should be striking. So leave everyone else you know. Leave your lifestyle. Leave whatever it is that you've known and loved. You get up and you go to a place. I'm not telling you where it is, but I'll show you. And so the response is, he gets up and he goes. And that's the model of faith. There's no questions. Lord, what are you doing? Why should I do this? Where are you taking me? How can I trust you? None of that exists here. It just says he gets up and goes. Do you remember with Noah, what that looked like for Noah? We looked at him a few weeks ago. God says, build a boat, big boat. It's so big. Probably going to take you about 120 years to build. And you've got to put it all together. And it's huge and it's long and it's tall. And you're going to have to get all the animals. You're going to make nests or rooms. You're going to put enough food in there for a year on the road, on the water. It's all this stuff. Now, you, you, you understand God's telling him he's just given him a plan for the next 120 years of his life. And what does the text say? And Noah did it. That's all it says. There's no, there's no, Lord, this is too hard. This is too long. I can't do this. Give me help. There's none of that. And he's just defined the next 120 years of his life. And all the text says is, and he did it. That's faithfulness. And that's the model of faithfulness. Faithfulness in the scriptures is I hear God's word, I believe it, I take it in, and I act on it. And what you've got in the story of Abraham in spades is faith in action or faith in obedience. You could call it either. But it was a faith you could see because it required him to do something. Faith in action. You go on there through verse 5. Lot goes with him. Abram's 75 years old when he left Haran. He takes Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions, and they head out. They pack the camels, they get the donkeys going, and they head to a place they didn't know. So when God praises Abram, he says this in Hebrews 11. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So his faith was he went out. He went out not knowing where he was going. Do you guys find the challenge that when you're doing something you think God wants you to do, you want him to tell you every step along the way what it's going to look like. Success is a given. And it's like you get none of that here. It's just you go and I'll show you when you get there. By faith, everything's by faith, based on God's word. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You could say ultimately he's not looking for the city of man. He could have just walked to Babylon. He's looking for the city of God whose architect and builder is God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's what you see. He's a model of faithfulness in action, in what he does. You look at Genesis 13, 17. 
You remember the story? You guys remember we're trying to build enough history that when we're done with this series, we have a big uh, scope of the big sweep of biblical history too. So Lot, who we'll see later, Lot says, hey, I, you know, we need to separate. Lot says, I'll go to the Jordan River Valley. It's the best, best area because it's water. And God says to Abram, hey, look around. All the land you can see, it's still yours. It's all yours. And so he says, get up, walk through the length and breadth of the land. So Abraham with his tents, they'd been planted. And so what does he do? He gets up and he goes and he starts walking to another place in the land of promise. Absolute obedience. Now here's one that catches my attention. This is Genesis 17. So God comes down to Abram and he says, hey, you're my man. We're in covenant. This is a good thing. And then he says, and I, and I want to expand on that covenant. I'm going to give you the covenant of circumcision. <clears throat> I don't know if gals can appreciate this, but God comes down and says, Abraham, I want to cut off. You're going to cut off your foreskin on your private part. I would have questions for God on that. This could, <laughs> could we reconsider this? You know, slaves got the all through the ear. You know, I, my ear would be good. Well, would that work for you, Lord? Could we just put a little hole through there? So God says to Abram, my covenant with you is circumcision. Ouch. So you and every male in your household, everybody that belongs to you, you're going to be marked out for me physically by circumcision. And, and how does Abraham respond? Verses 22 through 24. Again, there's no questions. There's no resistance. Nothing like that's recorded here. It says, Abram, uh, excuse me, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. He was 99 years old. He doesn't even wait a day. God says, you do this, you do it to yourself, you do it to every male in your group. And he does it. That's all it says. There's no hesitation. There's no question. There's no resistance. God says, Abram, you get up and you do this. And the text says, and that's what he did. No hesitation. He got up and did it. What you see in Abram's case is faith in action. It's faith you can see. It's faithfulness in obedience. God says something. It requires me to do something. And I do it. And that's the first example of faithfulness you have in Abram's account. Now, in James 2, verses 21 and 22, this is a passage that is provocative for some and I don't think needs to be, but James writes this, the Apostle James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now, James is not defective on biblical theology or history. James knows, and this is a passage we'll look at in a minute, he knows that Abraham was already justified before God in Genesis 15. He's referring now to Genesis 22, years later. It's not, he's not saying you're justified before God through your works. But the, the actuality or the very real nature of your faith is seen by what you did. So Genesis 15, he believes he's righteous. Look at that in a minute. But Genesis 22, he offers up Isaac. James says it this way. He says faith was completed. But we could say it this way briefly. Faith works. Faithfulness acts. And that's what you see here. 
So for many of us, it might be hard to see Christ in our life based on what we do sometimes. James' point is, don't tell me you have faith. I want to see your faith demonstrated. That's a full-blown, mature, lived-out faith. That's an authentic faith. That's a good word for us today. Faith should be visible by what we do. So faith works. In Abraham's life, you can go back, God speaks and Abraham acts. Paul uses a phrase in Romans 1 and Romans 16. He calls the obedience of faith. And there's variations on how we put that together, what we think that means. But faith obeys. Faith acts. You can see it. You see that in spades in Abraham. Like other examples of faith in Hebrews 11, we pointed this out in the first week, when it says they were faithful, it tells you what they did. And that's true here of Abraham. Faith in action. There's another aspect of faith in Abraham's life, and it's, it's faith in worship. This is from Genesis 12 again. This is after Abraham gets to the land of promise. It says this, says, they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So it's confirmation of the promise. You're in the place I told you I'd bring you. And this is the place I'm giving you. You're in, you and your seed after you. Abraham's response is, and excuse me, I keep saying Abraham. At this point, it's Abram. He's a father, but he's not Abraham yet, father of nations. So Abram responds, he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham expresses faithfulness by going, by action. When he gets to the place God said, this is it, he exercises faithfulness in worship. Now this was significant. He doesn't do this until he gets to the place God commanded he acts in obedience, he gets to the land of promise, and then he worships. And in worshiping and building that altar there, he says, this is the place God's put me. I worship Yahweh here. This is me in God's place in the time he means for me. This is faithfulness. And so his act of worship in building the altar is an act of faithfulness. You see the same thing in Genesis 13:18 in Hebron. He built an altar to the Lord. This is significant language, especially in the book of Genesis. And what you find is when um, Abraham and his heirs are not building altars, it's not a good thing. That worshiping God through building altars in the land of promise was an expression of their faith. So he builds altars in the place God had assigned him. He's doing what God's told him to do, and that is expressed in worship. Now what I want to follow up on here, sort of for our time, is this. So this is the order you see in Genesis 12. God speaks, Abraham obeys. He's in the place God tells him he wants him to be, then Abraham worships. So what the order is, Abraham obeys, and then Abraham worships. And that's significant. You know, in the time and place we live, we have days of worship. We have worship concerts. We love to worship. We go to the worship concert. We have the worship band. And you know, it's emotionally compelling, right? Music is emotionally compelling. So you got the, you got the lights down. You got the spotlights on. You got the great music. You got amplification. Some places have the fog machines on. 
Somebody said that represents the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, if you've got to pretend he's there, he's probably not there. Forget the fog machine. But there's this whole emphasis on worship. We want a meaningful worship experience. This is why, I, this is why Abraham, the, the progression here is important. If you read statistics and surveys today about evangelical faith, it's not faithful. So most of the surveys suggest there's not a dime's worth of difference in obedience and action between evangelicals and non-believers. How significant do you think it is for God for that group to come into His presence to worship? We haven't obeyed, but we're worshiping. You know, when you read in the prophets, in Isaiah and Malachi, God says things like, close the doors to His temple, to His house. He says, don't come here on the new moons and the celebrations. Don't bother. He says, I don't want your worship. Because you're idolatrous, Malachi, you're unfaithful to your spouse. You're not obeying. Don't pretend you're worshiping. The very word worship means to bow down before our superior. It's an act of worship that you're God and we're not. We're yours. If we don't obey, don't bother worshiping. It's not worship. It's pretense. It's for us. It's not for God. So Abraham's model is God speaks and he obeys, and then he worships. So if we want to give God meaningful worship, it should come out of lives of obedience. That we've acted in obedience to God's commands, and then we're worshiping. That was Abraham's model and should be ours as well. God says this about Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19. He says, I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. This is a great verse for dads. So he says, I've commanded him so that he will train his children to know me and to obey in faith and to follow me, to become my followers just like he did. And I wonder if that took. So what do you see later in Genesis 26, 25 in the life of Isaac? So Abram's son, the son of promise. Isaac grows up. And in Genesis 26, it says, Isaac's at Beersheba there in the south of the land of promise. And what did he do? Well, he built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. He did the same thing his dad did. I wonder why he did that. He's grown up in a house of faith. His father acts in faithful obedience. His father worships. And Isaac grows up in that household. Isaac grows up to do what dad was doing. Isaac grows up with the faith of his father, the obedience of faith, and the worship of faith. He'd grown up with it. We want to say just briefly, as Christian parents, we have no greater call than to pass on the faith, or the model of faith at least, to our children, right? That was God's command to Abraham. Now, what you and I cannot do as parents, we cannot give faith to another person, even our child. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we're meant to do is exercise the tools, the disciplines, the means by which we pass along what God considers important to our children. So we model that because we read our Bibles and we pray. We join with the church. We're knit in. We obey the things God calls us to obey. You know, if we are simply going to church, and, and this is something you'll see a lot of, if you just go to church and your children just go to church, when they grow up, do they want to just go to church? I would have better options. 
on Sunday morning than going to church. If you just want to be religious, why bother? If the church isn't salty and distinct, why bother? But if you give your children those things, the reality of your faith lived out before them, and you show them the importance and the value of a relationship with God, and you train them up to know God, that's the deal. That's what Abraham did in faithfulness as a father to God's call to Isaac. And you see Isaac doing exactly the same things. By the way, we'll look at Isaac later, but he follows dad positively in worship. What else does he follow dad in negatively? He's got some other problems we'll look at later. Just like his dad. Just like his dad. Like father, like son. So we want to be careful as parents. We want to be faithful like Abram was faithful to train up his son to know God and to worship in the same way he had. That's exactly what you see in the case of Isaac. Uh, There's a promise, and there's a key passage in Abram's life, and this is in Genesis 15, verse 1 through 6. This is incredibly important. As important as chapter 12 is, God's promise to Abram, life-changing, world-shaping, this passage in Genesis 15 is equally life-changing and world-shaping. So the Lord shows up to Abraham, to Abram still. This is uh, starting at verse 1, in a vision. And he tells Abram, hey, don't be afraid, I'm your shield, I'll protect you. You're in the land where I want you, I'm taking care of you. And your reward shall be very great. So Abraham, we're good, you're good. But Abram says, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, no seed. A member of my household will be my heir. Now remember, in this day, people wanted kids. (laughs) And in the Old Testament Jewish mentality, you lived on in your children. Not having children was unthinkable in those days. So God says, We're good, I'm here for you. And Abram says, Well, yeah, but... Where's my child? Where's my children? So the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. He said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him, as righteousness. Now guys, that verse is what the New Testament theology of justification by faith is built on. It's Genesis 15:6. That verse, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. And let's define that for just a second. Uh, righteous doesn't mean you're a good guy. It doesn't mean you're a nice person. It means that before a holy and perfect God, you are without reproach. It's that you're absolutely perfect before one who sees everything as it is. The the language of Romans or the New Testament, you're just or you're justified. This is a big term. It's a big thought. You're not just okay. You're perfect. God sees everything. He's holy. If God says you're righteous, you're absolutely righteous. Abraham's justification was by faith alone. And this is faith, and I've called it faith in believing, because this isn't something you can see on the outside. So God doesn't say this when Abraham gets up and goes. 
He doesn't say this when Abraham worships at the altar. He says this when Abraham merely says, God, you're true and I believe you. You're true and I believe it. And God says, you're just. You're righteous. And that's the theology we bring into the New Testament. Now, this is from Romans 4. You know, when Paul's Romans is his big epistle, right? And so chapter 1 is Gentiles are guilty before God. Chapter 2 is Jews are guilty before God. Chapter 3, the first half is everybody is guilty before God. We're unrighteous. We're unjust. The end of chapter 3 is there's an atoning propitiatory sacrifice that can reconcile man's unjustness with God's perfect righteousness. And that's Christ, Jesus' atoning sacrifice. You get to chapter 4, and this is what Paul writes. If Abraham was justified by works, meaning he wasn't, he wasn't justified when he got up and obeyed in Genesis 12. He wasn't justified, declared just, when he built altars. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham has nothing to boast about before God. For what does the Scripture say? This is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 5 says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's no work here. You and I can't do anything to add to our just standing before God. It's by faith alone. Now, James has told us faith works. And we can see Hebrews 11 says God commends Abraham for faith that worked. You could see it. But those actions don't save anyone. Works don't save anyone. Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4. We are justified by faith and by faith alone. Read this in Galatians 3. Sometimes people are confused. How were people in the Old Testament saved versus the New Testament? <laughs> the, the same way. How are you and I saved? We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. You know how people in the Old Testament were saved? By God's grace through faith in Christ. And then we say, well, they didn't, they didn't know who Jesus was. And we say, well, yeah, they didn't. But listen to this in Galatians 3. It says here, when Abraham believed that promise of God... When he believed that promise, he was believing in God's provision of a Messiah as well. And you say, well, the text doesn't say that there, but it does here in Galatians 3. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. When did Abraham hear the gospel? When God said to him, in you shall all nations be blessed. In Genesis 12, Genesis 12, God says is the gospel. Remember, in, in you and in your seed shall all nations be blessed. The blessing we know comes through Abraham's singular seed. This is a big deal in Galatians. The singular seed is not the numerous descendants of Abraham. The singular seed is Jesus, is the Messiah. So when Abraham believes God's word, he has believed in God's Messiah. Abraham is saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. Absolutely the same way any of us are saved today as well. Abraham and the other Old Testament saints, they didn't know that the Messiah's name would be Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. You know, as revelation occurred, they got more and more information. So he's going to come from Judah. 
And he's going to come from David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, he's going to set prisoners free. He's going to heal the lame. All that gets defined more and more fully over time. But these guys didn't know him by name and birthplace and lineage at that point. But they believed God would send a Messiah. They were saved exactly the same way we are today. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say the same thing. So we want to conclude related to Abram's faith on this. The most important element of Abram's faith had nothing to do with what he did, not his works, not his actions. He's praised for those. But the element of his faith we want to focus on primarily for ourselves, at least on the front end of faith and certainly in our conversations with others, is the faith that saves. It's believing faith. It's faith that doesn't do any work at all. And these elements, these concepts, this is exactly what you see in John's Gospel. You remember John said, I've written this Gospel so that you'll hear about Jesus, believe in Him, and you'll be saved. It's all about the Gospel. And in John chapter 6, this isn't in your study notes, but when the people are following Jesus and they ask Him, what good work what must we do that we can be saved? What good work? And Jesus says the work of God is no work at all. The work of God is for you to believe in the one he sent. So we need to be absolutely clear. Ultimately for us, Abraham's the object of faith in action, in obedience, in worship. But the starting point of obedience for us is always Genesis 15, 6. It's believing God's word about his Savior. We're saved by God's grace through faith plus nothing. Now, if we believe... Uh, if we believe that when people hear the gospel and believe in Christ and that salvation, they're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, what should we be doing? <laughs> we should be sharing the gospel, right? We should be sharing the gospel. We should be praying for opportunities to talk to others about Christ. The world around us is dying. And we're God's ambassadors on earth. We should be sharing the gospel. You know, in home group, and by the way, I hope everybody, if you're not now, you get involved in a home group. In home group, this is one of our constants on conversation. So I had a funny occurrence a week ago. So we've had home group. We've had a good time, good discussion. And we're winding down. I'm ready to close in prayer. And my dear friend Mary says, hold it, hold it. It's like, what? You know, what, what did I forget? Well, we talk about this every week. I forgot to say, has anybody had Christ-centered conversations this week? So she's been hearing this in home group. So she's got a story. So she's talked to her friend about Christ. And she wasn't going to let group end until she told us she, she had that conversation. And she basically said she got shot down. But the story didn't end. So she said, so the next week when I saw her again, I challenged her to listen. She didn't take no for an answer. And she's thoughtful and courteous in this. She's not disrespectful so she followed up a week later and challenged this person to listen to scripture to listen to some teaching so she's getting it that's what we should be doing we're ambassadors for christ on earth we should be sharing that same message that saves god's grace through faith in christ i do want to point out something um here too two two points and we're done quickly uh, Abraham was not perfect by a long shot. We, he's the exemplar of faith and faithfulness. He's the father of faith, but he's not perfect. So when you read his story in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, because he's cowardly, because he's fearful, 
he puts his wife in harm's way with the king of Egypt and with, the, with king Abimelech. And the, the episode in Genesis 20, God has told him, Sarah's having your son in the next year. And he's, he lets his wife be taken away to another guy's place? This is not a good thing. Genesis 16, when Sarai has the bright idea how to get the child of promise, I've got Hagar, why don't you go have sex with Hagar? We'll have a son, we'll call that the child. And Abraham, foolishly, he does what his wife says. And they get Ishmael, and Ishmael was not the one. Then later, Genesis 21, Sarai says, hey, this thing, Isaac's born, we can't have Ishmael around. This is my son, this is the heir. And Abram's like, no, we've got to keep them both. But in that case, Sarai was right. Abram's wrong. And God says, no, go listen to your wife. You've got to get rid of Ishmael. I'll do other things with him, but he's not going to grow up with the son of promise. So we want to be, be open-eyed about this. Abram is not perfect. He's justified and he's obedient and he's a model of faithfulness, but he's not perfect. And neither are any of us, right? When God talks about him, though, he talks about in the language of what he was characterized by. And he was characterized by faithfulness. And so when we think about our own life, uh, some of us will get down on ourselves. I blew it again. I blew it again. I blew it again. And if we sin, we want to confess and repent and be cleansed and get up and go back. But the question is, what are we characterized by? We will blow it, absolutely, multiple times. Multiple times probably every day. Thought, word, or deed. Omission or commission. What are we characterized by? Abram's not perfect, but he's characterized by faithfulness. Last, the climax of Abraham's faith in action, faith in worship, faith in believing, occurred in Genesis 22, when in obedience to God's word, he took Isaac the son of his love, to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice and an act of worship. And I hope when you read Genesis 22, in fact, if you do nothing else this week, read Genesis 22, this passage. So you got this image. There's Abraham the father with the son of his love. In fact, the language couldn't be more clear. Your son, your only son whom you love. That's the language of Genesis 22. You take him, you march up the mountain, and you offer him there on an altar as a sacrifice and a worship to me. And all it says is, guess what Abram does again? He just does it. So the image is, Isaac, the son of his love, has the wood of the offering on his back, marching up the hill to die, and his father's leading the way. And what does that sound like? You look at Christ, led by God. He's doing the will of the Father. The Father's leading up to Golgotha, to Calvary. He's carrying the wood of his sacrifice on his own back. To fulfill the good pleasure of the Father. Isaac gets off because God provides a substitute. The ram caught in the thickets. Jesus is the substitute. Abraham had no greater act of faith in action, in worship, or in belief than that. So Hebrews 11 says, and this is good. If, if you're Abraham and God says, all my promises to you are through Isaac. Now go kill Isaac. We might have second thoughts, right? Lord, are you sure on the logic of this? If all the promises are through Isaac, he's not married, he has no children, and I kill him, how's that going to happen? There's no questions asked. And what does Hebrews 11 say? It says, Abraham knew God would raise him from the dead to keep the promise. And what does God do with his son, Jesus? Raises him from the dead. 
to keep the promise. No greater act of faithfulness than Genesis 22 for Abraham. Let me pray and worship guys. You can come up if you would and we'll stand and share scripture together here in just a second. Uh, Father, we, we love you. We acknowledge the many ways we blow it. We thank you for the forgiveness that is as ready as our confession and your cleansing. Lord, thanks for the son of your love uh, dying on Calvary on a cross for our sins, the only means by which we could stand justified in your presence. Lord, help us to embrace that in believing faith. Help us to follow that with the faithfulness of worship and action. Lord, help us, as James talks about, help us to have a faith that not only believes, but a faith that works, that honors you fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Because once, yeah, yeah, Psalm 105. We're, we're, we're uh, sharing this together um, with the faith of Abraham. Let's, let's read this together. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones.